This is bully, Theodore Roosevelt said. Panamanian insurgents had pulled off a quick revolution, gaining their independence from Colombia with a little help from the United States Navy. One of the first acts of their new government was to sign an agreement with the U.S. granting the rights to build the Panama Canal. Congress, as one might expect, lost their minds. So did the major newspapers. Supporting Panamanian independence looked like a cynical ploy just to get the canal. For many, it was the worst kind of crass imperialism that America looked down its nose at Europe for. It is the most ignominious thing we know of in the annals of American diplomacy, the New York Evening Post exclaimed, and this blow below the belt is dealt by the vociferous champion of fair play. Hey now, I think that was a shot at the president. All the depredations of England and Ireland and Africa and India have been gentlemanly, compared with this sleek and underhanded piece of national bank robbery, the Globe reported. In the Senate, Supporters of the new nation of Panama declaimed that in response to unjust taxation from the distant government of Colombia, wait a minute, that sounds familiar, the people of Panama had risen literally as one man. Yes, Senator Edward Carmack replied, and the one man was Roosevelt. Okay, that was definitely a shot at the president. Teddy kept quiet, which was unusual for him, reserving his ire for private letters to his son Ted. In the Panama business, he wrote, the Evening Post and the entire fool mugwum crowd have fairly suffered from hysterics, and a goodly number of senators, even of my own party, have shown as much backbone as so many angleworms. A shrewd operator, Teddy knew he had been legally right in his dealings with Colombia and Panama. Foreign papers praised the actions of the United States. The London Times called Roosevelt's attitude studiously correct. There was little sympathy for Colombia, which was called the most corrupt and retrograde republic in Central America, which is saying a good deal. The president knew that foreign policy could not be subject to the same lofty ideals he practiced in domestic affairs. Foreign policy was about ruthless self-interest. The canal would be a major boon to the American economy. One-fifth of the world's shipping would go through it. He rightly suspected that American business would be on his side, which meant that the politicians they had bought would come around once their high-minded protests had been lodged in the congressional record. He also knew that the widely circulated cartoon of the American eagle clutching an isthmus-shaped creature in its talons, intended to be a criticism of his Panama policy, would actually be seen as a good thing by most of the American people. It would be viewed as America working within the tenets of the Monroe Doctrine and flexing its new international muscle in pursuit of its interests. Not usually a patient fellow, this was one time where the smartest thing Teddy could do was wait it out. In the way of our best presidents, Teddy didn't second-guess decisions that were already made. He was congenitally unable to question the rightness of his own decisions. Like Harry Truman, he did not regret what he had done, because it was done. The moralists could wring their hands and weep, but the Panama Canal was going to happen, and the United States was going to be in charge of it. By the time the Panama Canal Treaty came up for ratification, most of the world agreed that Roosevelt had acted properly in recognizing Panama. The Senate voted 66 to 14 in favor of the treaty that gave the United States power over the canal zone that it could exercise as if it were the sovereign of the territory, to the entire exclusion of the exercise by the Republic of Panama of any such sovereign rights, power, or authority. Teddy announced, I have taken possession of and now occupy on behalf of the United States the canal zone and public lands ceded by the Republic of Panama. 
the Canal Zone was essentially American territory. All that was left to do was start digging. Senator Mark Hanna, Teddy's only real competition for the Republican presidential nomination in 1904, brought the 52 members of the Republican National Committee to the White House. The sickly senator stood beside the young president in a tableau that demonstrated the essential fact of the next election. Theodore Roosevelt was the vibrant, energetic future. Hanna was the frail and declining past. There was a momentary silence. Hannah said, you had better pass around the room, Mr. President, and shake hands with each one. Teddy said, I was just wondering which was the best way to get at them. Hannah told him, you will have no trouble. They are all anxious to see you. Two days later, the committee expressed almost unanimous support for Teddy in 1904. This is bullier, Teddy said. Nomination all but guaranteed Teddy could afford to be modest about his chances of winning. I suppose few presidents can form the slightest idea of whether their policies have met with approval or not. Certainly, I cannot, he said. As far as I can see, these policies have been right, and I hope that time will justify them. If it does not, why, I must abide the fall of the dice, and that is all there is about it. He was committed to doing what he felt was in the best interest of the nation, no matter what. I would be as incapable of considering my own personal future as if I were facing foreign or civil war or any other tremendous crisis. It is a sheer waste of time to threaten me with defeat for the presidency. Nothing would hire me even to accept the presidency if I had to take it on terms which would mean a forfeiting of self-respect. All that remained was to see who his challenger for the White House would be. The Democrats tried to get former President Grover Cleveland, who seemed incapable of serving consecutive terms as president, to run against Teddy in 1904, but he declined. Grover was in poor health and would be dead in four years. The Democrats settled on Judge Alton B. Parker, a New Yorker like Teddy and one who had never served in any elected office. Elihu Root told Teddy that Parker has never opened his mouth on any national question, but the president was not comforted. The neutral-tinted individual is very apt to win against the man of pronounced views and active life, he said. Having just fought off a challenge by bland and colorless Mark Hanna, Teddy rightly figured that safe and boring was the only thing that could beat him. Teddy's campaign had to walk the tightrope between the qualities that thrilled the American people, his brash, impulsive, aggressive leadership style, and the ones that scared the beat Jesus out of the establishment, who saw him as too dangerous a lunatic to be running the country. The president sent Elihu Root, by then his former Secretary of War, and as establishment an establishment Republican as could be found, to talk them down off the ledge. Root made a powerful speech in New York to an audience of Republicans. He is not safe. Root told them. He is not safe for the men who wish to prosecute selfish schemes for the public's detriment. He is not safe for the men who wish the government conducted with greater reference to campaign contributions than to the public good. He is not safe for the men who wish to drag the President of the United States into a corner and make whispered arrangements. I say that he has been, during these years since President McKinley's death, the greatest conservative force for the protection of property in our institutions in the city of Washington. Wall Street's objection to a Roosevelt candidacy in 1904 diminished dramatically after this speech. Then, Senator Mark Hanna, the safe Republican choice, died in February 1904 at age 66. The establishment would get Roosevelt, despite any lingering reservations they might have had. And the American people got the Rough Rider, 
the war hero of San Juan Hill, the energetic president. Their children got teddy bears. In 1902, Teddy had gone on a hunting trip in Mississippi, in part to mend fences in the South after he had invited the country's most prominent black leader, Booker T. Washington, to dinner at the White House. His local hunting guides had wounded a black bear and tied it to a tree and summoned the president so he could shoot it and claim the bear as a trophy. Teddy was disgusted at the sight of the poor bloody creature. He refused to shoot it and ordered the guides to put the bear out of its misery. The newsmen who had gone along on the presidential trip had little else to write about, so the story of the bear was big news. Cartoons of Teddy and the bear were all over the papers. A toy manufacturer made a stuffed bear and asked Roosevelt's permission to use his name. Teddy agreed, and Teddy's bear made its first appearance. It wasn't long before thousands of stuffed bears were manufactured by toy stores like FAO Schwartz. Ultimately, billions of children around the world would have these bears. Most didn't know why they were called Teddy, which was a nickname Theodore Roosevelt hated. The election of 1904, therefore, came down to the young, colorful, energetic president versus the judge who dressed in a gray coat and gray trousers and lived in a gray house overlooking the gray waters of the Hudson and was the author of many gray legal opinions, so carefully worded that neither plaintiffs nor defendants knew what he really felt on any given issue. If America was going to return to the stolid, careful, dignified presidents it had gotten after Lincoln's assassination 40 years ago, this was its big chance. The Republican Convention of 1904 was a boring foregone conclusion by the time it began. Henry Cabot Lodge said, Excitement is impossible where there is no contest. A delegate from Pennsylvania who was less fond of Teddy said, The boss has fixed it all up and we might as well go home. There were huge pictures of William McKinley, Mark Hanna, and the recently deceased Senator Matthew Quay hung all around the convention hall. President McKinley's face was on every admission ticket. The Republicans struggled to cling to the dead past, even while facing the inevitable future. When Teddy was formally nominated, though, there was 21 minutes of loud applause and pandemonium. A large portrait of Teddy was brought in, and the dead men came down from the walls. Everyone was certain of victory except Teddy himself. He continued to make comments about the possibility of defeat while subtly reminding everyone of his achievements. From Panama on down, I have been able to accomplish certain things which will be of lasting importance in our history, he wrote. It is a wonderful privilege to have been here and to have been given the chance to do this work, and I should regard myself as having a small and mean mind if in the event of defeat I felt soured at not having had more, instead of being thankful for having had so much. His opponent was no lightweight. Unaccustomed to campaigning, Judge Parker was as refreshingly blunt as Teddy was. Right before being nominated, the Democrats fell all over themselves trying to come up with a stance on sound money, whether gold or silver should be the nation's standard. William Jennings Bryan's two campaigns in 1896 and 1900 had centered around free silver. There had been a shortage of gold in the U.S. Treasury, a fact that many Americans blamed for the economic panic of 1893. Bryan was a champion of unlimited production of silver coins, and the use of silver instead of gold is the basis for American currency. After his 1900 defeat, Congress passed the Gold Standard Act, which made gold the sole standard for all currency. By 1904, having already lost a couple of times on the issue, the Democrats tried to trot out both William Jennings Bryan and the free silver issue as part of their convention platform. The Democratic Party, Senator Tillman of South Carolina said, can always be relied on to make a damn fool of itself at the critical time. 
their presumptive nominee wasn't having any part of it. After reading newspaper accounts of the controversy over breakfast, Judge Parker sent a telegram to the convention, which was read aloud. I regard the gold standard as firmly and irrevocably established, he said, and shall act accordingly if the action of the convention shall be ratified by the people. As the platform is silent on the subject, my view should be made known to the convention, and if it is proved to be unsatisfactory to the majority, I request you to decline the nomination before adjournment. Wow. That was a move that was almost, shall we say, Rooseveltian, which Teddy himself recognized. It was a bold and skillful move, he wrote Henry Cabot Lodge. Parker had become a very formidable candidate and opponent. Many newspapers endorsed Parker, including ones that had supported McKinley in 1900. And Teddy thought getting the nomination was hard. Teddy kept his wilder aspects under wraps for the campaign. He exercised indoors and temporarily gave up swimming naked at Rock Creek. He even stopped playing tennis and shooting at things from horseback. His vice presidential nominee, Charles Fairbanks, was the kind of bland, paper-dry fellow, firmly in the pocket of Wall Street, put up as a counterpart to the gray-toned Parker. The New York Sun compared him to a table of algorithms and said that he had been nominated for national security reasons. The maddest anarchist would never think of killing Roosevelt to make Fairbanks president, a Sun editorial said. But Teddy knew that the 1904 election, in the words of writer Irving Stone, was one of a few in American history in which voters had two first-rate candidates to choose from. Support for Parker continued to rise. Then the Democratic nominee did the one thing that could cost him the race. He ran a classic front-porch campaign, sitting at home and having people brought to him instead of going out and campaigning. The judge's home was in a remote part of New York State and difficult to get to. He fell back into his habit of staying quiet on national issues. Nothing was heard from him, except his usual booming silence. Not only did this alienate his potential supporters, but it meant the only one talking was Theodore Roosevelt. The New York Sun, normally opposed to Teddy Roosevelt for his trust-busting and impulsiveness, finally gave him the kind of endorsement that was tailor-made for him. It was just five words. Theodore, with all thy faults. Judge Parker grew more bland and tepid as the campaign played out. John Hay, who had grown up accustomed to the hellfire days of American political oratory, said, we are at the end of the most absurd political campaign of our time. When Parker was finally persuaded to embark on a limited speaking tour, he made his topic the conspiracy theory that the nation's giant trusts, like Standard Oil, were funneling money to the Republican Party's chairman, George Cordelieu, who had been appointed by Roosevelt, in an effort to control the agenda of the next presidential term of office. Cordelieu was accused of being a Wall Street puppet, put in place precisely because of the money he could raise from America's business titans. Parker took it too far when he suggested that Cordelieu, who had headed the Bureau of Corporations in the Roosevelt administration, had gathered so much embarrassing secret information about America's biggest companies during his tenure that he used it to blackmail them into massive campaign contributions for Roosevelt. Teddy waited until the day before the election, and then hit back with the same power he had used when knocking down a drunken cowboy back in the Badlands years before. The assertion that Mr. Cordelieu had any knowledge gained while in any official position whereby he was enabled to secure and did secure any contributions from any corporation is a falsehood. The assertion that there has been any blackmail, direct or indirect, by Mr. Cordelieu or by me is a falsehood. 
the assertion that there has been made in my behalf and by my authority, by Mr. Corley or by anyone else, any pledge or promise in recognition of any contribution from any source, is a wicked falsehood. He demanded Parker reveal his sources, which the judge could not, and again declared, the statements made by Mr. Parker, he didn't even call him judge, so you know Teddy was mad, are unqualifiedly and atrociously false. This tirade, and the judge's silence, was what the voters went to the polls with on election day. The final results wouldn't be known for a few days, but Theodore Roosevelt was elected president, in his own right, in a landslide. He received Judge Parker's congratulatory telegram at 9 p.m. on election night. Even the early indications of his massive victory were compelling. Flush with excitement, Teddy gave in to his impulses, summoning reporters to his office at 10.30 p.m. Having consulted no one, he gave the following statement. On the 4th of March next, I shall have served three and a half years, and this three and a half years constitutes my first term. The wise custom that limits the president to two terms regards the substance and not the form. Under no circumstances will I be a candidate for or accept another nomination. Well, Mr. President, I sure hope that isn't a statement you'll regret someday. And I really hope it doesn't cause you to do something dangerous and self-destructive in the next few years. Fingers crossed. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some incidents where fans of the show take me to task about train wrecks I haven't talked about, and some that I have. It's a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash history's train wrecks, and thank you so much. If you have your own ideas about how to take over a skinny country you need to run your canal through, or you think Teddy should have talked to even one other person before promising never to run for president again, you can Twitter to at History's Train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to History's Trainwrecks. If there's a historical trainwreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the History's Trainwrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, we enter the regretful phase of Theodore Roosevelt's political life as he sits out the election of 1908, grows disenchanted with his appointed presidential successor, and storms the election of 1912 like a bull moose. Stay tuned for Teddy Roosevelt's Third Term, Part 4. Hello, great minds! Mr. DGMH here, but wait, what the hell is DGMH? DGMH, or Drinks with Great Minds in History, is a weekly podcast that covers one of history's greatest minds each month, while we enjoy review and rate themed cocktails, liquors, and beers on the scale of greatness. As greats like Alexander Hamilton square off against George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and more, DGMH is the perfect cocktail of history, sarcasm, and alcohol, with a twist of psych and a bunch of shots along the way. So grab yourself a drink with some great minds in history. Cheers! Cheers!